Well, good morning. Uh, Matthew 21, we're going to uh, wash up uh, the end part of Matthew 21, starting from uh, 28. Uh, two parables we've got to consider this morning. So let's, as usual, start with, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you as we want to think about two of the parables of your dear Son. And we pray, Father, that you will give us insight. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you likewise will give us insight and understanding into what you really want to, to pass to us this day. Please then give us the strength to be obedient, give us the strength to understand, the strength to change, the power to really repent, and to live the life, the new life, that it is clearly your will that we should live. Please help us, Father. We put our lives and our spiritual growth in your hand, knowing that you want above all our fruitfulness, and we believe in you for that, Father. In the name of your dear Son, and for his sake, we ask that you'll give this to us. Amen. Okay, so we looked last time at the, the parody of a triumphal entry which the Lord made into Jerusalem. And we're now going to uh, pick up here in, in Matthew 28, at verse 20, uh, Matthew 21, at verse 28. What do you think? The Lord says, a certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. He came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Which of the two then did the will of his father? And that is the question. So the man in verse 28 is clearly God. And he came, he came uh, to his, uh, to, to the first, and then he comes to the second. Well, the interpretation is in verse 32. For John came unto you, but yet the, the Father comes unto them. So then God was manifested in the teaching of John and in the ministry of John. It, it, when John came to people, then in that sense, God came to them. It doesn't mean John was God, just as it doesn't mean that Jesus was God in a Trinitarian sense when Things that God did are said to be done by him. But more to the point, you and I, when we engage with others, we are, therefore, the face of Jesus to those people. God is working through us, and his son is working absolutely through us. And you can almost feel that sense of manifestation when they're working with you in those situations. If you sit at home and watch telly, you won't feel that sense of manifestation. You go out and engage with people as a God's voice to them, and as the Son of God made flesh in front of their eyes, you will sense that manifestation, whether they hear or whether they, whether they don't. These two sons, then, are part of the Father's family. And surely they do represent different categories within Israel. So he says to the first, go and work in my vineyard. Now, that's interpreted later on in verse 32 when the Lord says that the, uh, the second son is like those who heard John the Baptist and they believed and repented. And that was the work they were asked to do. And John 6.29 comes to mind when the Lord says that this is the work of him that sent me to believe in his son. So this is quite a radical thing for Judaism that understood works, as many people do today, as specific acts of obedience, fulfilling specific commandment statements, etc. And the Lord is saying here that the real essential work is to believe and repent. Now, of course, faith without works is dead. If you claim to have done those things, and yet there's not a single fruit in practice, and that's, the, uh, I think, the point of the next parable about the, uh, the vineyard, um, if there's no, no works in response to that faith, then, then you haven't really uh, believed and repented. And I don't think it's so that, uh, although you know, Jesus is redefining work here, away from the Judaistic idea of it, and saying it's ultimately it's belief and repentance, he, if you see what I'm saying, is not saying that works are not important. And when you read Paul's writings, it could seem that Paul is sort of almost deprecating doing works, but I, I don't think so, and his own example is certainly not of that. 
I think what he's saying is that the works of the law, that is, works done from a spirit of sort of casuistic obedience to uh, certain statements from God, uh, commands from God, on the basis that we think that's going to justify us, no, that that is not to be done. But works in response to grace, well, is that not what Christianity is all about in practice? <clears throat> He says, I want you to go and work today, verse 28, in my vineyard. And the sense, I think, is that I want you to go right now. In other words, there's an urgency. And the urgency, surely, in a vineyard is only really at harvest time, when there's a critical window in which you've got to harvest those grapes. Otherwise, the harvest will be lost. And so he's saying, look, I'm at that critical point. Please, can you go? If you don't go, we all lose. The family loses the prophet, the farm loses, etc. And I think that indicates, I, I, I think, the, the practical nature of how God works with us, that he could do what he wants as he wants, but he chooses to work through us. And because that is his sovereign choice, it means that in that sense, his work, the harvest, cannot be fully gathered if we don't do our part. And we may say, yeah, well, if I mess up, if I drop the button, God will give it to someone else. Not necessarily. The work is in your hands. And because it's in your hands, if you mess it, if you don't trade the talents, then the profit is not accrued to the, to the master. Now, <clears throat> he says, that, go and work in my vineyard. Well, the, the Lord uses the vine figure, doesn't he, in John 15, and the, the fruit that is to be brought forth is clearly um, spiritual fruit. And yet each of us, according to this parable, really have the call to go and work in that vineyard. But the idea of a call to go to work in the vineyard was understood within Judaism as talking about the priests, that the that the priests, that the, the Levites, had a special call to, to go and, and work in the vineyard. That was how they understood it. That's how Judaism understood it. And so when the Lord says, no, you've all got the call, what he's saying is, in this new Israel, in this new community that he was building up, those ordinary guys that he, he was uh, in touch with, fishermen and carpenters and and so forth, that those very secular kind of people, for the most part, even tax collectors and prostitutes, that they are the ones who are to be this, this new priesthood. Now, in Palestine, politeness and respect to your father was absolutely paramount. Even if you didn't obey your father, you still had to be polite to him. And so the sympathy was, in a sense, I think, with this guy who is polite to his father but doesn't do it. And the guy who is rude to his father, initially, that's, that, that would have jarred and stuck in their gut very, very deeply. And the Lord, I think, is turning that understanding on its head. He's saying that the one who didn't have the right nice speak, uh, this is the one who, in the end, because he repented, he actually did the work in the end, he's the one justified, and the one who just had the nice speak was no good, and is rejected in the end. And I, I think I'd like to make a point, although it may not directly flow out of this, but it's related to it, about nice speak. But as internet communication has developed, uh, and it becomes really crucial then, what form of words you use, the whole idea of wordsmithing uh, and nice speak has become, I think, exalted to, to a ridiculous extent, where it is simply important about how you say something. Actually, what you're actually doing in your life uh, is not so important as the words that appear uh, on the screen of someone's telephone or, or computer screen or whatever. Uh, the, the form of words suddenly becomes very important. And in a sense, we in this age have gone right back to the situation of primitive Palestine, where the most important thing was to uh, be polite to your father and show on the external level respect. That was what was most important, but actually how you lived your life, what you did in practice, was neither here nor there. Now, that, I, I believe, is, uh, as I say, uh, where that ancient peasant society and the 
the problem they had, which the Lord here is standing on its head, um, <clears throat> that, that suddenly becomes relevant, I think, for us in this uh, technical age. Now, there's always elements of unreality in all the parables. And one of the elements here is that this man only had two sons. People typically, especially if they owned a vineyard and were that wealthy, they, they had a load of sons. And if they didn't, well, they tended to adopt them, like Abraham did, um, uh, and call them uh, their sons. So how tragic, then, in this tragic story, really, in that sense, that he had only two sons... And uh, neither of them were too good. One was rude to him and disrespectful, uh, although in the end he went and did what his father said, and the other one simply was smarmy and didn't really love and respect his father, but showed that he did uh, and didn't actually do the work. And then the, uh, the harvest, therefore, was, was damaged and lost because of, because of him. So we become sort of sympathetic to this, it seems, uh, kind uh, older man. And then, of course, the, the penny drops that those two boys are us. One of them, anyway, is going to be us. And the, the kind, hurt man is the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father. Now, time and again, looking through the parables and the teaching of Jesus, he splits people into two groups. The serious sinners who kind of repent and kind of put it right on one hand, and on the other hand, those who appear not to be sinners, those who appear to be basically righteous, who actually is just a facade, and they don't really repent of what they have done wrong, and those people are the ones not in God's kingdom. So you have a choice to either recognize you are a serious sinner, serious, big time sinner, uh, who kind of repents and does in a rather crippled and... and uh, uh, dysfunctional way what you can after that repentance or you just up yourself hypocrite and you won't be saved now let me just uh, demonstrate then what I, what I mean of course these, this parable here is, is the classic one really these two sons you've obviously got another parable of two sons with the prodigal you've got the, the nasty boy who wants to take uh, his, his dad's money before his dad's dead and then goes and blows it uh, absolute profligacy and uh, comes back uh, uh, in repentance there's him who ends up in the father's house and the elder son who's apparently righteous who says he's always been obedient who ends up outside the father's fellowship then you've got another two men in Luke 18 the, the sinner who won't even lift up his eyes to heaven uh, weighed down with the, the burden of his sin and the other man who looks up to God and says, I thank you that I'm not like the other bloke next to me. You've got the laborers in the vineyard, the, one, the, the ones who are weak, who no employer would hire and only do one or two hours work and get the same money as those who did a whole day's work. Uh, and then the stronger laborers who work all day hard and then are told at the end of the day when they complain about their weaker brethren, uh, go your way, which I suggested is really him saying, you're fired for saying that. Go. Get out. You've got the, uh, the builder who builds a house on rock, but his progress is very, very slow. And the other guy who apparently builds a nice house quickly on the sand, his house is destroyed. You've got those who've got a splinter in their eye. <clears throat> from God's viewpoint, who are in need of spiritual correction by others. And then you've got those who've got a plank in their eye. You've got the man who owed his brother a hundred pence. And the other bloke who owed his Lord 10,000 talents. You've got the, the spiritually despised Samaritan who helps the wounded man. And then you've got the apparently righteous Levite and priest who pass on on the other side. You've got those <clears throat> who go towards the day of judgment feeling that their oil, their spirituality, the spirit within them, <clears throat> is running out. And that they're probably not going to have enough and therefore they take some extra because they feel that they're not going to be strong enough. Then you've got those who are sure that their spirituality, their oil is quite enough and they find that it's not and they end up being driven out of the kingdom of God. So then that's a choice before us. 
And if you look at my notes, you'll see I put these in, in two parallel columns. If you look down the left-hand side uh, of the, those who will be saved, it's, it's really not a particularly pleasant picture. You've got prodigal sons wasting their father's money, uh, profligate life. You've got those who uh, refuse to go and do the father's work, but then their tail between their legs, they, they kind of do, and so forth. And on the right-hand column, you've got all the characteristics of those that won't be saved those who think their spirituality is enough, those who beat up their brethren, those who won't fellowship their brethren, uh, those who are confident that they're building uh, a nice house that's got a good foundation, those who speak very nicely to God, uh, but actually don't do what he says, and so forth. Now, unless you're in the left-hand column, unless you're in the, the column of the serious sinners, then you're in the other one. Now, this is not just one or two parables. This, this is repeated and extended teaching by the Lord. Now, that really ought to make us think. Because, really, if we are not sensing our own sinfulness and our own weakness, uh, and if the motive for all that we do is not a, a sense that I'm totally not worthy to be in the house because I am absolutely a big-time sinner, then, really, we haven't got it. We, we haven't engaged, really the most basic level of Christianity. Well, this son, who represents us, says, I will not go and work. Stuff you. I am rude, and that's me, that's you. Rude to God. That's what a parable says. If you say, oh no, I'm not like that. Well, what are you then? Nice and smarmy to God, but then you don't do the job? No, oh, you put yourself in the right column, then you'll be out of the kingdom. We want to be in the kingdom. So you're in the left column. So you and I... You're rude to God. Okay? I won't go. I don't want to go. Stuff your harvest. I don't care that it's going to perish and uh, etc. I'm not going to go. But afterwards, he does. I do. You do. Now, this word afterward, it's used three times here in succession in Matthew 21. Here in 29, afterwards, he, he repents and goes. And then in, in 32... Now, he says, you Jews didn't repent after, afterward, after you had seen the prostitutes repenting at John's teaching, at John's preaching. And then he says, verse 37, uh, later on in the, in the chapter, and afterward, last of all, after sending the prophets of whom John the Baptist was the last, afterward Jesus, uh, God sent his son, Jesus. So the Lord is really saying that in me, you have your final opportunity. Well, afterwards he repented and went to, to work in, in the vineyard. So his motivation for working would have been that I'm so sorry that I messed up. I'm so sorry for saying no. I'm so sorry that I didn't do what you wanted. And so the motive for all his works would have been most definitely uh, repentance and, and humility and that of course time and again is what is so crucially important to, to God I go sir verse 30 literally I sir the implication really is that he's being far more obedient and respectful uh, than his brother and I, I think the Lord is alluding to Exodus 24 verse 7 where at Sinai the people say all that the Lord has said we will do and will be obedient. Yes, sir. And, of course, the Lord, more specifically, is talking about the work of John the Baptist. And he, he's saying that, uh, you know, John came to you and you all trooped out to listen to him. You know, according to the earlier chapters in Matthew, uh, John had a huge response. People trooped out there to listen to him, got baptized and so forth. And he's saying that, yes, you did all that, but... You were simply saying, yes, we will go, but you didn't believe him. And he says, verse 31, the tax collectors, and who's writing this or speaking this gospel? It's Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector says that the tax collectors and prostitutes uh, did respond, and they go into the kingdom of God before you. So then... <clears throat> John had come to them uh, appealing for their 
repentance and for them to believe in what he was saying. Now, what was he asking them to believe? Well, in Acts 19 verse 4, we read that he was asking them to believe in Jesus. John baptized the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe in him, that is in Jesus, who should come after him. So then the appeal very much uh, of John was to believe in Jesus. And although they all trooped out to listen to him and got baptized and confessed their sins, Jesus is saying that actually, no, you didn't repent and believe what he said. That was all on a surface level. Now this is where it gets pretty scary for all of us. You can claim to believe, claim to have been baptized, claim to have repented. But all those things, it's quite possible to do on a purely surface level. Because the Lord is saying that <clears throat> you people who did that, you didn't really believe and repent afterwards. You notice the order in verse 32, you didn't repent so that you might believe him. That's definitely a causative uh, clause there. You didn't repent so that you might believe him. Now, if you repent, that means you ask for forgiveness. And it straight away throws up the question, on what basis then can I be forgiven? And the basis of that forgiveness is Jesus. And John was asking people, we just seen in Acts 19 verse 4, to believe in Jesus, in him that should come after him. So then, he's saying that, well, you didn't really but they, you know, they did on a surface level. Believed, baptized, repented, and they, they even liked the sort of rah-rah, hard-line approach of John. That, you're a bunch of sinners, you're this, you're that, and the harder he, he cussed them kind of thing, the more they streamed out of Jerusalem to listen to it all. They thought it was great. And, you know, when I've seen that, you know, many times in, in, in our own religious and spiritual lives, that those who seem to like a hard line, criticizing themselves, criticizing everybody, that, and putting up this high standard and a pretty brutal demand for repentance uh, and change of life, you know, there's often, there's nobody at home in real spiritual terms. Their spiritual lives are actually on their own admission all over the place. Uh, and this is exactly what you see here. Now, the Lord then uh, goes on to, to say that, in verse 32, when you had, sorry, the publicans and the harlots believed him, and you, when you had seen it, did not repent afterwards that you might believe him. In other words, they should have looked at those uh, prostitutes and uh, tax collectors who were repenting, at John's teaching, and they should have been motivated by that to repent themselves. And that's exactly how it is with us. That the repentance of others, the change, the radical transformation in others' lives is intended then to be our pattern. And we also are expected to repent. If God has brought into our lives living examples of other people whose lives have been transformed. Now when he says the publicans and the hearts go into the kingdom of God before you, 31, that doesn't necessarily mean that this, second, that this category of those who said that they would go but didn't go, that they will go into the kingdom, just the, the prostitutes are going to go in first. The idea of going into the kingdom before uh, I think the idea is of being a herald, that they're going to herald you on your path to the kingdom of God. And you think of 1 Timothy 5, it's the same word, in fact, in the Greek, that the sins of some men uh, are open, going before them to judgment. It's, I think, what he's saying here is that uh, the fact that those people repented is something which is going to be there and held uh, waiting for you to come and, uh, and face up to the day of judgment. Or another option is that Jesus has this incredible hopefulness for people. He had an incredible hopefulness for these really quite horrible people who, who, who condemned him and got him crucified. His hope was that they would still somehow get into the kingdom of God. 
just the prostitutes uh, would be greater than them in, in God's kingdom. Now thinking through the situation here, he says 32, you didn't repent afterwards that you might believe him. In other words, what he's saying is, the ones who said no, and then they went, well, that should have inspired you to also say, okay, we'll also repent and go. In other words, they were going to have to put themselves in the very position of the prostitutes and the publicans who had said no, and then they repented. Now, the Jews had said no, and the Lord is saying, look, you should afterward have repented. After you saw them repent, you also should have repented. But, of course, what he's saying is that you, the religious leaders of Israel, uh, are uh, were required and are required to put yourself in the same category as the prostitutes and the publicans, and they just couldn't do it. And it's the same again with us. But when we see people who we might consider to be serious sinners or whatever, we might say, ah, look here, uh, we can't have that person in our, in our church. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're all sinners, sure. But I don't do that. You see? Well, the minute you say that, just the same. You're just like them who say, uh, no, no, I, I can't possibly put myself in the category of the prostitutes and the, and the publicans. I just can't. I might be a sinner. Yeah, yeah, we're all sinners, blah, blah. But I, I don't do that. That's the point. There is the rub, is it not? So then, he goes uh, on with another parable. That's a really, really tough one to, to believe and feel and respond to. 33. There was a certain householder who planted a vineyard, hedged it round about, digged a winepress in it, built a tower, let it out a husbandman, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman that they might receive the fruits of it. Let's just stick there. It's quite clear that the Lord here has quoted his entire parable from Isaiah 5, from the Song of the Vineyard. And I'm going to read that to you. Let me sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved about his vineyard. Now, again, the genre is initially that of an idyllic happy harvest song, but it, it's subverted because it turns into bitter disappointment and a declaration of judgment. Just as I suggest this whole story about um, a vineyard that's let out to uh, tenant farmers and then the absentee landlord is far away. Initially, the sympathy of the peasant population would have been with the, the tenant farmers because there was a lot of this going on in Israel at the time of absentee landlords who couldn't care less about the land, just said, no, you pay up, send me the money so that I can live in Cyprus or whatever, uh, having a cool life, uh, and, and you just get on and farm that land and that's, that's your problem and they had to pay a huge... Uh, huge amount of their, their money went to these absentee landlords. So people start off with their sympathy for these guys, but in the end, the parable turns all that quite around. So then, it's the same with the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah 5. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. The environment was ideal. He dug it up. Now to dig was the work of the lowest servant. In the other parable, to dig I am ashamed. Uh, and yet the owner, apparently God, uh, did this. He dug it around, he gathered out its stones, and I suggest the effects of the curse in the Garden of Eden were sort of ameliorated. He planted it with the choicest vine, the men of Judah are my choice vine. He built a tower in its midst, cut a wine press in it, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded poison berries. Now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, please judge between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more for my vineyard that I have not done for it? So the father did absolutely everything so that fruit could be found. This owner of the vineyard, like the one here in Matthew 21, he wants more than anything else fruit. He's almost obsessed with it. Because oddly enough, in Matthew 21, in the parable we just read, 
uh, <clears throat> he sent his servants that they might receive the fruits, element of unreality. Because the absentee landlord didn't want a bunch of grapes sent to him in Cyprus, he wanted money. You make the, you harvest the grapes, sell them and just send me the money. But this one wants the fruit, the actual fruit. And it's the same here in uh, Isaiah 5. <clears throat> Why? When I looked for it to yield grapes, did it yield poison bellets? So I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be eaten up. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled down. And the Targums on Isaiah 5, the Jews understood this as a re reference to the trampling of the temple by the hands of the Gentiles. I will lay it a wasteland. It won't be pruned nor hoed, but it will grow briars and thorns. That's exactly the language of the curse on the Garden of Eden after Adam has sinned, which sort of implies that <clears throat> in this vineyard there were no briars and thorns, that the curse had been ameliorated to some degree, the stones had been gathered out, etc., I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. That's exactly the language of Elijah. It was the prototype of John the Baptist. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And Isaiah 5 goes on to talk about how they got drunk on the wine and how they were totally materialistic, unjust, etc., what God wanted was fruit, justice, uh, righteousness, etc. <clears throat> so then, he planted this vineyard, going back here to Matthew 21. It's all the same language, that the owner, uh, God, has uh, planted the vineyard and done absolutely everything for it. The simple point is, according to Isaiah 5, that he was absolutely passionate about getting fruit out of this vineyard, and he therefore has done everything. He's made the environment perfect. And even on a, a physical level, you can see that reflected in Deuteronomy 8 verse 7, where God says that the, the land of Israel, he had designed so that it was excellent for the culture of vines, viticulture, the, uh, the, uh, the growth of vineyards. It was a fruitful hill, ideal for this. Now, of course, all this is talking about Israel bringing forth spiritual fruit and us bringing forth spiritual fruit. The environment in my life and your life is ideal for that. Now, if you take nothing else out of this whole talk, take that, please. The environment in your life and in my life has involved a huge amount of effort by God to be ideal for us to bear fruit. And yet, what do we do? We, we hear all the time the complaint uh, from, uh, from all of us. If only... If only I had a different job, a better job. If only I had more money. If only I wasn't quite in the domestic situation that I'm in. It would be so much better. If only I lived in such and such a town or country and not where I am now, then I could be so much more spiritual. If only I could whatever. If we could have... Two cars, then so on, so on and so forth. Or if only we could have a car, then we could do this, that, or the other. And all that is a blaming of environment for our apparent lack of spirituality. Now, of course, I, I'm not saying that, that we should just dumbly accept our, our situation in a sort of uh, fatalistic sense uh, and do nothing to, to self-improve or whatever. I'm not, not, not saying that at all. What I am saying is that so often I hear the excuse, ah, yeah, well, for the moment, I'm, I'm putting all my emphasis and all my time on finishing my degree, on uh, just uh, paying my mortgage, on developing my business, because, you see, when I've done that, then I will be able to serve the truth. 
or whatever. And that's not how life works. The environment is ideal for you right now. Don't make excuses. Well, me either. The environment is ideal. And even if you've got into your environment by sin, mistakes, bad judgment, whatever, uh, in the end, God has a wonderful way of working through that environment. He really does. And he's made it absolutely ideal. Now, this is, as I said, this is a very, very hard parable to believe. Because we all tend to think, if only this issue could be resolved, if only that issue could be resolved, then. But God has done all this to to absolutely bring forth spiritual fruit uh, in us. That's what he passionately wants more than anything else. Now you can try and find meaning to the hedge, the wine press, and the tower. And I, you know, I scratch my head thinking about those three things. Well, what could they all represent? But, you know, the overall picture is simply this, that God has made this huge effort, and both Isaiah 5 and the parable here in Matthew 21 seem to imply that the owner is so passionate about his project that he did all this uh, himself with his own hands. He hedged it round about, well, oddly enough, the same Greek word is used there in Ephesians 2.14 about the law of Moses as a wall of partition. So, maybe uh, the hedge is the law. And uh, Jesus is saying that, yep, God is going to take that away. Um, And, in fact, according to Isaiah 5, the vineyard is to be destroyed. Now, they say, when he says, well, what do you think should be done? They say, ah, yeah, give it out to other people. Well, actually, God's way is to destroy the vineyard. And uh, what Jesus says at, at the end is that, well, the vineyard shall be given uh, to people who bring forth the fruit thereof. He's changing the imagery. He's saying that they, in their own lives, will bear the fruit. They become the vines. And that, of course, is exactly what you've got in John 15, that we are uh, the vine in the sense that we are in Christ, uh, who is the, the total vine, and the fruit is on us. So then, everything was really ideally set up. I think that the wine press and the tower probably do refer to the temple because they are to be trodden down, uh, as I five says, um, because of the lack of fruit. Uh, and of course, the wine press is used only elsewhere by Jesus in Revelation, and there he uses it as a symbol of judgment. So then, what should have been for their blessing? turns into their condemnation. That's why the wine press has a double symbol. Just as the cup of wine, which we take uh, at the breaking of bread, is a double symbol. That it's the cup of blessing which we bless. And yet, also, according to Jeremiah and other Old Testament passages, to be given a cup of wine, like Babylon was given, means to be condemned. So then it's a double symbol. It works both ways. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, make sure you take that cup to your blessing and not to your condemnation because it is a double symbol. And so it is with the wine press. It was the the, the method of bringing forth uh, wine from the grapes. And yet it was also it was also used as a, a symbol of, of judgment and, and condemnation. Now, why, why then do they beat up the, the, the messengers? Well, I suggest it's because they didn't actually have the fruit to give them. Reading on in Isaiah 5, it says there that instead of uh, giving, uh, instead of, you know, uh, having nice grapes, they in fact got drunk on the wine. So whatever, they kept it for themselves, and they would not give it to God. They hijacked, they hijacked, the the things of God's kingdom. They hijack the vineyard for themselves. And we may think, well, how could we do that? Well, here's how Israel did it. In the Old Testament, you read about the feasts of Yahweh, Passover and so forth. In John's Gospel, you read always of the feasts of the Jews. You read so many times about the temple of the Lord. Jesus said, 
My house, and sorry, your house, your house is left unto you desolate. So he's saying then that what is God's house, you take took over as your house. You hijacked what was God's. Just as you, you will hear that terrible that blasphemy, I'm afraid, from, from, from some folks who should know better, who, who say, we couldn't have you, brother, at our table. Your table? There's a table of the Lord. And anyone who says, uh, only certain people who we specify can come and, and break bread with us, they've done the same. They've hijacked They've hijacked the table of the Lord and turned it into their own uh, table, which they use for their own middle club, their own little religious uh, organization, and for their own evil ends. So then, we can do this by turning the things of God's kingdom into our little own personal social club. And that's what happens. And that's what we can all do. And that's what Israel did. So he went into a far country. Well, people didn't like the absentee landlords. And there's a, a tension here in this parable between this uh, man who does so much for his vineyard and is so interested in getting fruit out of it and grapes and so forth, and yet he goes to a far country. He seems distant, and he also seems incredibly naive. Why keep on sending these servants? And they keep getting beat up and killed. And then the guy says, well, you know what? I got a good idea. I'll send him my son. I'm sure the reference my son. Duh. And then suddenly he bursts into judgment. When finally they kill him, he bursts into judgment on these people. And is that not exactly the picture of God? That he appears to be absent. He appears to have shown a lot of love and interest, but then he's gone far away. And he appears very naive. And he just appears not in touch. And in fact, when they say, this is the heir, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. You know what that implies? That implies that they think, effectively, the owner is dead. Because if the owner was still alive, why would they say, if we kill his son, we'll get this as ours? No. If he was alive, that wouldn't follow. It would still be his. The inheritance would, would not be theirs until they killed him as well. So effectively, they thought that he was dead. That's just how it is. The death of God in practice. That that is, you know, how people feel. Well, they don't use those words to say that, yeah, I think God died. No, no one's going to say that. People might say, oh, I'm an atheist, I don't believe there's a God. But people would not say, ah, yeah, there used to be a God, but you know what, he died. No, no one would say that. And yet, that's what these guys would imply. Certainly no Jew would ever even dream of saying that. But Jesus is saying, that's what you think, isn't it? Effectively. And we can get that sense as well, that yeah, well, God is around, but maybe he's far away and he's just, just beating time until, uh, until maybe the second coming and, uh, you know. But that is what's going to happen, that suddenly God will reveal himself and it will be clear that he was not, uh, just passive and disinterested. Well, he went into a far country. This is talking about God. This is not talking about Jesus. This is not talking about his ascension to heaven. That would be to uh, confuse the elements of the interpretation. On Sinai, God came down, Exodus 19, and then Psalm 68, 18, in allusion to that, says that after that he ascended up on high. And I think that that's the idea, that this it, it was, uh, his going into the far country was after his uh, self-revelation to uh, Israel. So then, the time of the fruit, verse 34, drew near. It drew near when the first servant was sent. And according to Matthew, there are two groups of servants. And I think that refers to the former and the latter prophets. And uh, then, according to uh, um, Mark, they wounded the last servant in the head. And I think that detail is referring to John the Baptist being, uh, being beheaded. So then, from the time of the very first prophet, it was the time of the fruit. It had drawn near. And yet there was this great delay. I think what that means is that the kingdom of God could have come 
at all sorts of various times in the past. It, the time was ready. Just as, in the next parable we're going to read in Matthew 22, uh, the marriage supper, or the, the marriage uh, for the son is ready. And he sends out servants to say, all things are now ready, come to the wedding, and they don't. Or come to the banquet, rather, and they don't come. And therefore, there's another program put into place whereby their city gets burnt up, and there's a process of calling in everybody from the highways. I think that shows that God's purpose is open-ended. And one reason we cannot set a calendar date for Christ's return is because there isn't one. Simple as that. It hasn't been set. There isn't such a thing. Because instead of a calendar date, there are preconditions. And Jesus potentially could have come many times, I believe, even in my lifetime. And the whole uh, purpose of God uh, with people, with Israel, could have come to its climax could have come to term at a whole number of different times. Now, if you look at this phrase, drew near, <clears throat> about the time it drawn near for the fruit, um, it's used at the beginning of Matthew about how the time has drawn near in the coming of Christ's uh, ministry, the first time. But by the end of his ministry, the Lord is warning in the Olivet Prophecy that there will be people coming and saying, the time has drawn near, same word, when it hasn't. Peter and Paul, they both talk about how the end of all things is drawing near. They clearly had in view AD 70. And yet that also didn't see the Lord's coming. And so there has been a delay, just as, in one sense, Nineveh's time for judgment had come. In 40 days it shall be destroyed. But they repented, it didn't happen. That's a positive example. just shows his sensitivity to human repentance. So then he sends his servants, the prophets, uh, and they killed some and stoned others. But actually in the Old Testament you don't read too much of the prophets actually being killed and stoned. But killing, uh, beating, and stoning are all mosaic punishments for apostasy. In other words, they treated the prophets as if uh, they were uh, apostate. They transferred, I suggest, their own anger against themselves, their own unspirituality, onto, uh, onto, onto the, the prophets who were reminding them of that. And then this apparently naive, very passionate landowner who's just passionate for the fruit. You know, he wants more than anything else fruit. And uh, it's what he wants more than anything else in our lives, is our spiritual fruit. He makes the environment right even when people beat up his servants, he sends more, and eventually sends his son. And he says, they will reverence my son. And Luke 20, 13 says, it may be that they will reverence my son. It says that in the, uh, in the AV. And it could mean, it could just as well be translated, surely they will reverence my son. Now, well, how are we supposed to understand this? I don't think you can just say, well, that's just the furniture of the parable. Because the parable rather hinges on this point. So, here's my take on it. I, I do believe that uh, because God is in relationship with us, that he has to, well, he doesn't have to, but he chooses to limit his, for example, his omnipotence. God could do anything, could save everybody in one moment. But he chooses not to. Yeah, he chooses not to. He limits his omnipotence. He could do, but he doesn't. He could do many things, but he chooses not to. If he limits omnipotence, why not limit omniscience? In other words, yeah, God could know all, the end from the beginning, but he doesn't have to. And I do believe that he limits himself to some extent in order to enter fully into relationship with us. There are times very wealthy and very intelligent people, uh, often men, who fall in love with some girl from some dirt poor village that they've met out in the middle of Africa or someplace uh, while doing some, you know, good deeds or something or other, and they, you know, they get married. Now there's the, uh, the, the highly intelligent, highly privileged uh, billionaire uh, married to some dirt poor girl with not much between her two ears how they get on. 
he has to limit himself. If he is to enter genuinely into a relationship with her, he has got to limit himself. He has got to limit his own uh, knowledge, consciously. And that, I believe, is what God does in order to build a relationship with us, the, the God of the cosmos, who met, you know, us little things down here on this planet and for some reason fell in love with us. And so I, I do believe that God limits his, uh, his foreknowledge in that sense. And why does he do that? Because of love. This is why yeah, the hopefulness of love can make very intelligent people who know, actually, who know better, uh, it can make them feel quite different. That, uh, you know, the intelligent woman who falls in love with the alcoholic uh, street man, uh, you can tell her all you want about alcoholic men who live on the street. And uh, she, on one level, can know that, but her love and her hopefulness for that guy gets to such a point that actually she doesn't know it anymore. Question of her lack of intelligence. And so that, I think, is what happened here. I think that's why the Lord Jesus was shocked and hurt at the betrayal of Judas, when on one level he knew from the beginning who should betray him. But on another level, he didn't. So then, God can only experience things like shock, hurt, disappointment, anger, all these sort of emotions that we read about God and the sort of positions that you read about God being in, he can only experience those things if he has to some extent limited his omnipotence, uh, his omniscience. Because otherwise all that language is meaningless. All that language is basically God saying, yeah, just kidding guys, just kidding, yeah, I'm just telling you that's how I feel, but actually I saw it all from the beginning and so it is and so it shall be. But yeah, I'll just tell you that I was disappointed. Well, in that case, then how much is anything worth? How much is the Bible worth? How much is God's expression of feeling worth? And yet, if we take all those statements of disappointment, hurt, uh, shock, uh, surprise, uh, and, you know, you've got those passages in the prophets where God speaks openly about Israel, and he said, I thought that these would be my, the sons of whom I would be proud. And what a disappointment. And it's the same here. Absolutely the same here. I thought that this would happen, but that happened. Now I take that as it is. And as I say, you can only take that as it is if you accept the idea that God limits his omniscience. He limits his, his foreknowledge. Well, when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, let's kill him. That's straight out of the Septuagint of Genesis 37:18. When the brothers see Joseph coming to them, they say among themselves, let's kill him. And likewise, it's an allusion to Isaiah 53, verse 2. When they shall see him, there is no beauty that they should desire him. And uh, desire him, uh, sorry, despised, it goes on next verse in the Septuagint, uh, that uh, he is despised. It's the same word in Mark 12:4 that they shamefully handled the servants. Now, I, I said about God knowing things and yet not knowing them. And I think you have an example of that again on a human level in verse 38. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. So the leaders of Israel initially recognized him as Messiah. Um... They, you know, Jesus says, because you see, and because you understand, because you are not blind, John 9, uh, therefore you will be judged the worse. And yet, in another sense, it seems that they, they didn't know who he was. And uh, then you've got this difficult passage in Acts 3.17, that through ignorance they did this. They were ignorant at the point when they crucified Jesus. But it says here that they recognized him as the heir. And they said, let us kill him. Now, what are we to make of that? I think on one level, <clears throat> you can know something. And on another level, you do not know that. Now, if that's a feature of human beings. Then I, you know, let's remember we are made in the image and likeness of God. But that also is part of him. He knows on one level, but doesn't on another. He knew on one level from the beginning that Jesus would be killed. On another level, 
surely they will reverence my son. And I would say that practically that uh, psychological situation arises in God as it does in human beings because of a passionate hopefulness that arises out of a passionate love for people. And it was because of his hopefulness in them that he had this this feeling. This is a, a wonderful thing that we're touching on because this same God is our God and he has that same passionate hopefulness for you and me. And there we are, we feel so beat up about ourselves, so negative about ourselves. You lose faith even in yourself, don't you? At times, especially in depression, low points. And yet, God has got this passionate hopefulness for each of us. Well, they, 39, they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. It's easy to apply that to Jesus being killed outside the city limits of Jerusalem, going forth outside the camp uh, in terms of Hebrews. And yes, maybe, um, but cast him out is parallel here with uh, the stone being rejected by the builders. So the casting out and the rejection of the stone are in parallel. And I think then that that's what he's talking about, that they rejected him in a religious sense. He uses the same word in Luke 6.22 to talk about how people would be cast out from the synagogue. And again, John 9.34, they cast out the blind man from the synagogue. 3 John, verse 10, Diotrephes casts them out of the church. So I think this was a religious disowning. And if you really stand up for your principles and for the principles of Jesus, you will almost certainly be chucked out of churches. And you certainly lose relationship and you will be rejected by some. Okay, in those moments, you know what? You are sharing in the very crucifixion sufferings of Jesus because Israel cast him out. So then, you know, in all these things, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him, Paul says to Timothy. So then, when he comes, he says he will miserably destroy, 41, those wicked men. Miserably destroy and wicked are the same words, effectively. So then, those men are going to get a a judgment according to what they have done. And that is uh, really exemplified here when the Lord says to them, so what's he going to do to those husbandmen? Verse 41, they say he will destroy them, uh, he will give them, they say, the, the judgment, uh, the, the wickedness, the, the, according to their wickedness, uh, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, who shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Well, this is how condemnation works. Out of people's own mouth they are judged. It's not the man with the one talent. The Lord says to him, out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. And it does seem that at the day of judgment, words will be quoted back. That's why Jesus says, by your words you shall be condemned. Now think about that. By your words you shall be condemned. In other words, at the day of judgment, your words will be quoted back to you. And by those words you will be condemned. This is the crucial importance of how we speak. Because our words will be the basis of our judgment and condemnation. Psalm 137 talks about what Eden said to Jerusalem. And uh, you know, it seems to be saying that those words will be quoted back to Eden in their condemnation. It's the same with, with Nathan's parable to David. David comes out with uh, certain statements about the hypothetical man in, in the story. And of course, you are the man. Jude 15, to convict all that are ungodly of all their hard words. That's the purpose of the Day of Judgment. So human words in this life, that you said this, will be raised at the Day of Judgment. And it's easy when you go and feel this kind of tension in, in this life, arguments of strikes of words, to think that, are you, it's only words. Look, guys, that's what was said, but look, let's just draw a line and get on with life. Maybe we have to be like that, but God is not like that. There will be a judgment of human words. 
That's what these passages are teaching. And of course, that's why they were so furious. And when they realized that they had condemned themselves, and they were so mad, verse 45, because they perceived that he spoke of them, but that's not really what it means. He had spoken through them, peri, not spoken about them so much as he had spoken to them through their own words. Now, they had no option but to just fall down and say, yeah, you win, we're trounced, we're so sorry. Or to carry on because of hurt pride and do what they did. And that, sadly, is what they chose to do. And so the Lord tells them, because he realized the position that they're in. Look, I'm a stone. Either you fall upon me, you stumble over me, and are broken, or I will be like the stone of the image in Daniel 2, and I will hit you and grind you to powder. You have a choice to either sin and be broken, or to be ground to powder. And that's our choice, to either be broken men and women, broken by our own recognition of our own sinfulness, or to be ground to powder. 